0: Welcome to Musicians Weekend, the podcast in which we explore the weird and wonderful lives of those who keep classical music making alive. In each episode, we discuss recent classical music news and interview a different special guest. This podcast is hosted by three freelance musicians based in London. My name is Olivia Jaggers and I play the harp. My name is Imogen Hancock and I'm a trumpeter.
1: My name is Davina Shum and I'm a cellist.
0: Thanks so much for your feedback on the last episode when we discussed the BBC's headline, Orchestral Musicians Living on Breadline. We had a couple of messages agreeing that the sensational headline didn't do us any favours. One listener said they felt embarrassed that non-musician acquaintances would make assumptions about their earning potential and that it further aggravates the notion that musicians don't need to be paid properly. Um, Somebody also messaged to say that although we criticised the article for not quoting figures, we didn't actually say what freelancers and orchestral musicians do earn. Now, we do think that transparency in the industry is important. And while we are not prepared to tell our listeners exactly what we earn, we encourage you all to be transparent with your peers for your own instruments to make sure that fees stay up. Very well said. Moving on. Davina, what have you been up to in the last fortnight?
1: So one gig I wanted to talk about in particular was a quartet gig I got to play in for the opening of the new wing at the Royal Academy of Arts, which is pretty swish, Um, and it's quite special, special to be playing background music surrounded by the most incredible art but I think I was in one of those moods where I was just irritated by everyone there, which I'm sure happens to everybody when they perform. Um, so for example, we had one woman who came up to us afterward finished playing a piece and she said, thank you so much for your lovely music, but it's just such a shame that no one's listening to you. <laughs> and I just kind of think, well, I actually quite like these gigs because they're quite low pressure. And maybe you wouldn't really want to hear what I'm doing up close because maybe I can get away with things I wouldn't, you know, do on stage. Um, And then they go on to assume, so are you all students? Which also further irritated me as if they thought that this kind of work wasn't professional, um, that the next step up is playing an orchestra or maybe having a flourishing solo career, which is really not for me. Um, A man came up afterwards and bearing in mind we're a quartet playing covers of pop songs which is very trendy these days. Um, Lots of Lady Gaga on the bill as well as Madonna. Um, He rocked up in his red trousers it's not really necessary to say that but he bellowed have you got any Haydn and then sort of snorted off into another room when we told him no and I just thought well okay well done for knowing that but Clearly we're playing pop songs, so we probably don't have any hide in in our pads. Um, And I think the final straw was just a woman came up to us while we were playing and she shoved her phone right in our faces one by one and took loads of photos and videos of us as if we were a jukebox in a corner that wouldn't protest or notice. And I'm trying to do my job and then having a phone shoved in your face is not really conducive to playing very well. Um, And then while we were still playing, um, she proceeded to say, I just love this. You guys are amazing. It gives me goosebumps. Um, And it was just quite frightening. She was really intense. I wanted to say back to her that she gave me goosebumps. (laughs) um, The wrong kind. Yeah, not, not not my place to say. So I think the moral of this is that to all those people who say things like, you're doing what you love, Um, oh, it's a hobby, Uh, it must be so relaxing. I say, you know, yes, while I love playing my instrument, I love creating an atmosphere and making people happy at these events. I'm perhaps not so great at dealing with those people.
0: Well, as a harpist, I get to do a lot of background (laughs) events and um, whilst I might not always enjoy them, mainly because I'm by myself every time, so I always have to be... um, in some kind of good mood to deal with those people, I am used to all those comments, and I get the one about uh, "shame no one can hear you" mm. all the time. <laughs> um, and yeah, it is a bit disheartening, um, but it's I, part of
1: the job. It, isn't it? it
0: really, yeah, I really, I mean, I'm, I, I'm so used to those comments, I cannot, I don't even know what I can say about them. Does it. it offend you? Um, no, because they are also paying to have music that they can speak over right yeah I, it sounds awful but I kind of know that's part of the job yeah, they're trying what? to be nice and say we really enjoyed it. we were listening and I if was you listening felt yeah, yeah. like I think they're just trying to prove that they were listening
1: it all depends on my mood though maybe I was just hungry
2: I <laughs> that
0: <laughs> <laughs> angry. angry
1: and yeah maybe on another day I would have been like a bit more just saying, you know, I'm not
0: always, I'm not always good at dealing with those people. Yeah, just
2: <laughs> for the record.
1: <laughs> so, Imogen, what have you been up to?
2: Well, last week I went to watch a concert at the Festival Hall by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, and they played a great program. They started with a really short, cool piece by Stravinsky called *Scherzo alla Russe*, which I didn't know at all, but it was really brilliant. Very short; none of us really realised it had finished. Everyone was like. Do we clap? Um, It was was brilliant. (laughs) And then it was followed by Beethoven's Fifth Piano Concerto, also known as the Emperor Concerto. And the soloist Kirill Gerstein, um, he actually stepped in very last minute um, for someone who had been taken ill. And I just think it's always amazing how someone can (laughs) step up like that and play from memory to a you know, full concert hall. It's absolutely amazing. Um, And then in the second half of the concert, they played the Firebird, again by Stravinsky, but they played the complete ballet, which is not usually the version you hear. Normally you hear the suite. Um, And that's the one I knew, so I didn't know the full ballet, and I absolutely loved it. It was brilliant. And I also, this week, listened to um, a few episodes of the BBC Young Musician podcast, which is hosted by Jess Gillam. And... I really, really enjoyed it. They've got a handful of episodes on subjects like memorising music, practising, performance image, and getting into music. And I just really enjoyed listening to that. So do check that out on iTunes.
0: I have to say, I listened to the memorising episode, and Jess Gooden's tip was to colour in sections of the music. So I've done it with my music. Oh, brilliant. (laughs) Yeah, so I'll let let you know. I think it it did help. I got the highlighter
1: out. (laughs) Oh, nice.
0: Olivia, what have you been up to? Just this morning, uh, it's Monday um, afternoon now, and we release this podcast on a Wednesday, um, I was playing today at the Chelsea Flower Show. It was a performance as part of the Spirit of Cornwall Garden, designed by Stuart Charles Towner and Bethany Williams, in collaboration with composer Leo Gaia, who is the founder of Constella Opera Ballet, which is the first company fusing opera and ballet together, specifically... And we were playing a piece for soprano, string, trio, and harp with um, a contemporary dance that had been specifically choreographed for space. And actually the whole garden had been designed around one of Leo's pieces. Um, That's how they created the garden, based on his piece. And um, yeah, it was just a really special place to be playing. Uh, It was really exciting because all the press were there and it was just, Felt really buzzy and like a fun place to be in. Did you Um, see Alan Titchmarsh? I saw Alan Titchmarsh. (gasps) I saw Monty Don. (laughs) I know, who's was hunky. I have seen some really good things this fortnight. I saw Manon at the Royal Opera House uh, that has music by Massenet. I think it's probably the favourite ballet I've ever seen. Uh, It takes music from Massenet's opera based on the same story. I went to a concert by the fantastic Listen Pony, a concert series and commissioning body curated by the composers Freya Waley Cohen, Will Marzi and Josephine Stevenson. And I saw Lessons in Love and Violence at the Royal Opera House, which is the new opera by George Benjamin that I was so looking forward to seeing. And yeah, it was, it was very, very dark. The music was excellent as expected and no, they were just really cool sound world created. My particular favorite was the use of the dulcimer. Do you know the dulcimer? Yes. Which is yeah. A, um, it's called the
1: mallets, right?
2: Yeah.
0: The strung, horizontally flat um, the mallets, and uh, the combination of dulcimer and tuba, the stuff, <laughs> it's, it's really cool. So yeah, I'd, I'd really recommend. I think there's still a few days left to go and see it.
1: And it's quite a short opera, isn't it?
0: Uh, it's an hour and a half, no interval. Okay. It's very intense. Sure, yeah. Like, the first thing I said when it finished was bloody hell. Like, I. <laughs> like, it's, it, it, it's full on.
2: In classical music news this fortnight, the Royal Philharmonic Society recently hosted their annual award ceremony, which celebrates the outstanding, the pioneering, and the inspirational in classical music. A little quote on their website says that, for classical music, the RPS Awards is the Oscars, the BAFTAs, and the Grammys all rolled into one. So hopefully that gives you an idea of just how glamorous it is.
1: Oh!
2: is. I've actually been lucky enough to be there for the last two years, and last year our very own Olivia was nominated <laughs> in the Creative Communication category for her amazing project 15 Second Harp. Um, so we went at each other's plus ones and enjoyed the bountiful Prosecco <laughs> on offer. And ended up in sushi Sambo at 3am, drinking
1: yep. cocktails. <laughs> Clearly very outstanding and pioneering. It was <laughs> wonderful.
2: This year, there was stiff competition all round, but the 2018 winners include guitarist Sean Sheber in the Young Artist category, singer Alan Clayton, pianist Igor Levitt, the Sixteen in the Ensembles category, principal conductor of the LPO, Vladimir Yurovsky, Mark Anthony Turnage for his large-scale composition, Hibiki, And the LSO's concert series This Is Rattle, recognising Simon Rattle's return to London as their principal conductor. Huge congratulations to all of the nominees and winners this
1: year. Also, the final of the BBC Young Musician of the Year was on Sunday the 13th of May, featuring Maxon Calver on cello, Robert Burton on saxophone and Lauren Zhang on piano. Each finalist played a concerto with the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, and it was the pianist Lauren Zhang who won the title with her absolutely blistering performance of Prokofiev's Second Piano Concerto. Taking over from cellist of the moment, Sheikou Kenemason's Two Year Reign. I personally was really impressed with Maxim the Cellist, but really I'm just impressed with anyone who goes up on stage to perform a concerto. It's... My worst nightmare. I actually have a recurring nightmare about this that I've been asked to play a concerto that I don't know. And for some reason I think it's okay to get on stage and <laughs> sight read. And then I wake up in, in a huge uh, flap, horrible. So um, not only that, I could really appreciate the challenges presented with performing a piece like Tchaikovsky's Rococo Variations. Somehow I managed to perform it in my final master's recital at the con. Its simplicity is just so difficult to pull off stylishly, and it presents so many technical difficulties. But ultimately, I think he looked like he was having an absolute whale of a time. So the next contestant to perform was Robert, who um, played the Creston Concerto for alto saxophone. I think he had amazing energy, Um it was quite hilarious seeing the counting faces in the orchestra. It's not a piece that's performed often, I imagine, so they are probably having to concentrate <laughs> a lot. And I thought Lauren had a magnificent mastery of the piano. She had such poise and control with which she executed her concerto. I felt like it was a journey. She d- displayed such maturity in her playing beyond her 16 years. She's really on another level, so we'll see what the future holds for her. Maybe she'll have a gig at another high-profile wedding. Uh, Speaking of which, the Royal Wedding was on Saturday (gasps) and had a fangirl moment. Sheku played at the Royal Wedding. Incredible. He played three pieces during the signing of the registry. As a result, his album Inspiration is now, as of today, Monday, number one in the US iTunes pop and classical charts. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Outranking Taylor Swift. <laughs> She's number nine.
0: We thought it was very fun at the wedding how the three of our
2: instruments were heavily represented.
0: Yeah. So we had to be Denise the
2: cellist. Yeah. Imogen. We had uh, all the fanfare trumpeters and also the wonderful Dave Blackadder playing uh, eternal source of Light Divine as Megan walked up the aisle. And we
0: also had the incredible Anne Denham, who's the official royal harpist, harpist to the Prince of Wales, Playing and she had a very prominent role. And we we're lucky enough to speak to Anne hot off the press. Hello.
2: Hello. Hi,
0: Anne. You're Hello. live on Musicians Weekend. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so we just wanted to ask you what was it like playing at the Royal Wedding?
3: Um, well, uh, it was an amazing experience. I uh, still can't quite believe that I got to be a part of it.
2: Um, it was it was really magical. It was so lovely. It was um, kind of amazing that it was also really like a
3: normal wedding. Um, it was two people who love each other getting married, uh, which was absolutely beautiful. But also, obviously, the um, the way that they decorated the church
2: and all of the people outside. It was also obviously a really enormous event and um, the atmosphere in Windsor, even from Thursday, was um, really something to behold. It was it was beautiful and fantastic, yes.
0: Um, I was wondering how far in advance you knew what you had to play.
2: Oh, that's a good question. Um not that far in advance because obviously all the um, a lot of the details have to be kept under wraps um, until the last minute. Um, so yeah, I think I had um, ten days or
3: so um, when I knew what I was playing and I could I could get a hold of the music. Yeah. So yeah.
2: But then obviously we we it, that you were couldn't tell anyone about that.
3: You had to just yeah. Um, Prepare
0: it yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> did you did you get given any wedding cake as a thank you? Because we heard <laughs> that at the last wedding they got given some cake. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> yeah. No. I didn't get any cake oh <laughs> uh, no you 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 were there you didn't need any cake <laughs> no it was yeah I, I definitely
2: felt like I had enough to, to go on it was amazing
0: yeah oh, thanks so much for talking to us Anne seriously really appreciate it yeah no
2: problem
0: at all thanks for having me <laughs> <laughs> good luck with your recitals tonight thank
3: you
0: yes yeah I
2: should start thinking about that <laughs> okay. okay nice to talk
0: to you and you thanks Anne so much And now to our final piece of classical music news, which is about
1: sharks. (gasps) So sharks prefer jazz to classical music. So before we get all sensationalists, we should point out that researchers at Macquarie University in Sydney trained sharks to swim to where jazz was playing, underwater, I hope, in order to receive food. But when they played classical music, they got a bit confused and they didn't know what to do. So it's unknown what piece was played to the sharks, but perhaps with a bit of outreach, accessibility, <laughs> and the opportunity to hear more of the genre, they could have worked it out. Olivia hates sharks, so perhaps it's best for her that they don't discover the genre.
0: I am going to be swimming in the sea and in swimming pools with classical music blasting out No jazz, me. boombox, <laughs> forevermore.
1: Awesome. Imogen, tell us a bit about who you chatted to this week.
2: This week I interviewed superstar bassoonist Amy Harmon. Amy has already achieved goals that so many musicians only dream of so I thought it'd be really interesting to hear about how her career has unfolded so far. We met at Amy's house in Camberwell on the beautiful Saturday afternoon that followed the royal wedding so here is my chat with Amy. Let's begin by talking about where you are in your musical life right now. So could you tell us about the various different strands of your career?
3: Yes I always really wanted to have as diverse a career as possible which as a bassoonist isn't that obvious because people mainly think of it as solid orchestral or teaching or nothing really but I was really inspired by other wind players like Nick Daniel or people who just do loads of different things. So at the moment, my main job is at English National Opera, where I'm Principal Bassoon. And I absolutely love opera and it's a complete treat to be there. I am Principal Bassoon of the Aurora Orchestra, which I love very, very much indeed and keeps me on my toes. I'm a YCAT artist, um, the Young Concert Artists Trust, and they manage my solo work and I teach at the Royal Academy. I've just started doing bits of broadcasting, which is very interesting. Yeah,
2: I remember seeing you on Young Musician,
3: BBC Young Musician yes. presenting. <laughs> yeah, my television debut, it was <laughs> kind of terrifying, but really fun. It's something that I that I enjoy doing and I really think it's important to have advocates for music, especially advocates for unusual instruments mm. and people who are visible and women who are visible. I, I just think it's an important thing to be doing and I'm sort of very happy to champion it if people will have me.
2: So I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your path to getting here. So why you chose the bassoon, where you studied and kind of how you entered the profession.
3: Yeah so it was not my first choice that's for sure. I started as a cellist yeah. and I was a first study cellist until I was about 17 actually. I went to the junior department of the Royal College of Music, which I cannot recommend highly enough. I just absolutely loved it. And I went to a London state school which had very little music. So this was heaven for me. And my family aren't musical at all. So I didn't have any immersion in music apart from junior college. And they encourage you to take up. When did
2: you start the cello?
3: I started when I was about five. So I'd been playing for three years or something. I mean, I was pretty terrible, but they. (laughs) They were really lovely and saw saw potential. They think that if you're very young, you shouldn't just only have an experience of one instrument, which I think is completely genius. And I really hope they still do that because I always am telling my students at the academy now, imagine how you would bow that. Imagine if you were a string player, how would you bow that? How would you lift the sound? Because it We get into really bad habits if we're only a wind player or only a string player or only a pianist you get stuck with the habits of your instrument and that's really dangerous because you lose the music you become an instrumentalist not a musician so i think it's really clever that junior college tried to keep us diverse even at a young age so i went there as a cellist and then they said pick a wind instrument and i was allergic to anything in the treble clef (laughs) it's so weird i just was i hated anything high I kind of still do I just like low things and so I decided that I wanted to play the bass clarinet because my mum had bought me a book of the instruments in the orchestra and it had a CD and I can so picture the page there was this tiny girl with the bass clarinet and I thought (laughs) that is my career that's what I want to do and the CD you know I pressed play and heard this like amazing sound and thought that is the best and so my mum dutifully took me to it. instrument rental shop in London and I was about you know four foot two and said I would like a bass clarinet please and they you know it must have been very hard for them not to wet themselves laughing at me and they said do you pay any of the other clarinets and I said no and they went well you have to go through them first and of course was not interested because they were in treble clef and high and I didn't want to do it so they said do you want to play the bassoon because we have a plastic bassoon that you could hire plastic I know it was glorious and I was definitely not going home empty-handed so I reluctantly took this bassoon home and I loved it more and more as I got older in the end it became my main thing I wasn't going to be a musician I, I hadn't even applied to music college and then a few of my friends from junior college had applied to the Royal College of Music and they had this brochure that had an opera singer in the opera theatre on the front. And I thought, oh my God, that's so cool. I want to do that. I want to be on stage. So I just applied the day before the deadline and ended up going there. And I was there for four years. And I did a year in Prague as an Erasmus, which was amazing. And I think everyone, if they can, should get out of the UK. So that
2: was during your four years undergrad?
3: Yes, that was my third year. Most of my third year, I was... I was in Prague with a terrifying teacher absolutely terrifying really incredibly old school and he would so be sacked from the academy (laughs) or college or anything you know he basically broke people down to be able to then mold them and so you really had to let go of all your habits that you'd brought with you when you came to study with him I remember the other students told me stories of you know some students would vomit into the bin outside his (laughs) room because they were so nervous and People would just cry their eyes out in the lesson. And I remember one of the other girls studying there said to me, I cried so much today. And he looked at me and laughed and said, I don't know why you're crying when all I'm telling you is what everyone's thinking when they hear you play. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so awful. Oh my God. So awful. But for me, it was exactly what I needed. And so he had me playing long notes for about six months and would kind of torment me. I remember once he came in, (laughs) to my lesson and I was warming up and he took his hat off and put it on the hat stand and he was midway through taking his coat off and he just put the coat back on and put his hat back on and left. And I thought, what is he doing? And then I got a text message about two minutes later saying, come back when you've actually bothered to try and do something about how bad your playing is. <laughs> <laughs> no way. I know, but it was great. I loved it actually because I wanted to prove him wrong. I wanted to get his approval. He would always just say, no please, no please, no please, everything I paid. And then once he said, more better. <laughs> and I thought, yes, I've made it. <laughs> <laughs> I've proved him wrong. But what he taught me was discipline. I barely did any cohesive practice before I went there. And the students there practiced really six hours a day, every day, even win players, which I didn't think was possible. And I remember saying to them, why do you practice so much? I genuinely was baffled as to why they were practicing so much. And one of the other bassoonists said to me, until I get a job, this is my job practicing is my job and I thought wow that is true until it's paying you which is what you want you have to do it as if you were going to work every day you can't just take a day off because you feel a bit ropey or you're a bit tired and so it it taught me a total regime which I kept I really kept and really got a lot out of once I came back
2: so when you did come back to London and you finished your fourth year at the college then what happened after that
3: so I finished my fourth year and i was thinking about doing a master's but i wasn't quite convinced about where i wanted to go or who i wanted to study with so i decided to do a year where i would go and play for lots of professors in germany and lots of people in the uk just to work out who i wanted to learn with but in the meantime in this year I got a week of work with the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and their principal bassoonist was about to have a year-long sabbatical and their principal conductor had asked that they have one young person cover the year. This is Cherry Fisher who's a flautist and a wonderful flautist and great musician and he said it's a really good opportunity for a young person and it means we'll have the same person for the whole year. I did a week there And there was some terrifying bassoon part. And I, of course, had the time to practice back then. So kind of went in and did well. And they offered me a year as principal bassoon there, which was my total dream come true because it's a lot easier than getting a job actually, because of course they knew I was only going to be there for a year, so they could offer it to me even though I very much was not the finished product. They could take a chance on me that they wouldn't take a chance on if they were appointing someone who might stay there for 20 years.
2: Yeah. So that was your audition, basically, that week of stressful yeah. playing.
3: And I didn't know. they. I didn't know that he was taking a sabbatical. It was a total shock. And then I moved to Cardiff, knowing no one there, having actually, you know, I'd never had a day's professional work in my life before I went to BBC. Never played National in a orchestra professional World. orchestra. Never played in a wow. professional orchestra. Had literally zero experience apart from the student orchestras that I'd been doing, and had the nicest section in the world who were also total pros at their job Dave Buckland and Martin Bowen, Second Vicino <laughs> Contra, and BBC Welsh. And shout they'd, out to them. Shout <laughs> I out. I love them. They're so great. <laughs> and they'd been there for like 35 years but they were just fantastic and inspiring people and they told me what I was doing wrong in the nicest possible way so that I never felt undermined. I always felt really supported by them and that they loved my playing and that it was okay that I was playing everything in the wrong clef or twice the speed or, you know, (laughs) they were just so nice. And then halfway through that year, the Philharmonia Principal Bassoon job came up and I applied and I did an audition when I had gastroenteritis, interestingly (laughs) enough. So... (laughs) he said i was staying and i came back to london i stayed with my parents and i said to my mum i really i have a fever and i've just been sick and mum was like you're just nervous get in the car <laughs> and i was really genuinely ill i had to take 10 days off work after that so i auditioned for the Philharmonia and got a trial and thought that really it was all my life's dreams come true that i got a trial because they were the orchestra that i'd been really obsessed with as a student So that was it. I would have been happy just with the trial. I really didn't expect anything to come of it. And then I got a call on my 23rd birthday or something. Amazing. And the bassoonist, the principal bassoonist, Robin, who was the other half of my job when I was there, was ill. And they had a Rite of Spring tour starting the day after for a week. And I think I was 97th on the list of people they'd tried. Or, you know, really, why would you give that to a 23 year old who has no experience so I was free and I could do it and I said when's the rehearsal and they said it's already started and I was in Cardiff in my pajamas with a Domino's pizza because it was my birthday (laughs) and I got in the shower got my passport got my bassoon and then got in the car and I drove down the M4 at probably a very high speed (laughs) got to the Queen Elizabeth Hall where they were rehearsing and walked on stage I'll never forget it. Esa Pekka Salonen was conducting, their principal conductor. He stopped everyone playing because I had to climb over the whole frigging orchestra, which is the worst thing about where in sit. And then I sat down and he gave me like a salute. <laughs> I just thought, what is happening? And then, birthday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't tell anyone it was my birthday. It was like the most tragic <laughs> birthday ever. And then we did Rite of Spring, Miraculous, Mandarin and Bolero. It's kind of bassoon for
2: anyone who doesn't know, The writer's Spring by Stravinsky begins with the most amazing bassoon solo.
3: Very high, very, very high bassoon solo. For me, who hates treble clef, you know, was <laughs> Getting too
2: close for... Exactly.
3: <laughs> and I'd never played it before and I'd never heard it all the way through as a piece. This is really embarrassing. What a terrible student I was. I just have listened to the bassoon excerpt and then turned it off <laughs> about two minutes in. And the first time I heard it was in rehearsal with the Philharmonia, with Per Conducting, and I thought, good God, this is a really good piece. <laughs> I think, God, it's so good. Who knew that something happened after the bassoon solo? And so I went on tour with them for a week. I was probably so embarrassing because I was such a fan of everyone in the orchestra, that I was too nervous to kind of really speak to anyone properly. Cause was,
2: was this your first, the first bit of your trial? Like, it was the first you... bit of my trial. It was the first time I'd been in. Okay.
3: I didn't know anyone. I had not a single friend in the orchestra. I remember asking the leader what instrument he played at lunch once, you know, terrible, like, <laughs> never do that on trial. <laughs> he very politely answered violin. <laughs> so embarrassing. That was my trial, basically. Wow. And usually trials take a long time. They can take two years, three years, something. But basically that is the most intense it will ever get. Principal conductor, all the principal players on, the biggest solo in the repertoire, That is... And you were on tour. And we were on tour.
2: Yeah, that's because that's a real, that's quite a good indicator of whether you can really fit in, isn't it?
3: I was terrified. I was more terrified, I think, of the professional atmosphere of it. The fact that no one was my age and that I didn't know anyone more than the playing. The playing, I kind of thought, right, I've just got to do this. But I was terrified of everyone and I didn't drink a drop and I went back to my hotel room and practiced all the time. There was complaints apparently about from the people who were in the next rooms to me because I was just practicing. (laughs) This would not happen on tour now, just so you know. I'm a bit more chilled out (laughs) than I was back then. But that was all they needed to hear, they decided. So they pretty much offered me the job at the end of that week. Have they heard any other trialists? I think they were about halfway through and at this stage I there was quite a few bassoon jobs up there was the Royal Philharmonic principal job so they offered me the job really fast and I'll never forget it it was an amazing start and yeah. it was wonderful. Having a job like that straight out of college
2: must be the dream for so many students but can you tell us about the reality of having a principal job at
3: such a young age having a position of responsibility or authority over these people who are older than you yeah i thought i would be fine personality wise because i'm confident and i'm a strong person and i'm not afraid of people easily but it's actually still really not easy as a young person and especially as a young woman in a predominantly male section you are aware that it's just harder to get your voice heard actually And you don't automatically command the respect that other people might, which was difficult for me to accept and difficult to deal with. That was eight years ago now. And I think of all the things I I would have done differently and how I would have behaved differently. And I think I'd have trusted my instincts more and not felt so panicked that people weren't listening to me and that I wasn't respected. I'd have respected myself enough that I didn't need to worry about that. When I see very young people get principal jobs now, I'm delighted for them but also my heart goes out to them a bit because you're so young. I really was very young and there's younger people than me now getting principal jobs and I think really I could have done with a good few years of just having a laugh and getting drunk with my friends and not having to go and play incredibly difficult music live on the radio with very little rehearsal every week which was what the reality of the job was. When I tell people that I work with abroad and when I work in orchestras in Germany or something I can't believe it you know we have six days rehearsal on one (laughs) Beethoven symphony I'm like come on we'd have done five Beethoven cycles by now if this was Philharmonia so it is really scary I had to learn the repertoire like I was going to conduct it I had to come in knowing it backwards I still have all my parts that I annotated before the rehearsals with and then the flute comes in and then you come in and then this happens and then just so I wasn't lost and in the wrong place yeah. the whole time. I remember everyone saying in the wind section, don't worry, it will start coming around again soon. You know, you'll start recognizing pieces. I bloody didn't, there was, <laughs> there was nothing. We would just change repertoire so much. And actually when I got the job and when I finished my year of BBC Welsh and then started the Philharmonia the day after, terrible decision, what? why did I do that? I know I should have just taken a holiday, <laughs> calmed down a bit, but I started the day after. The first three months, was everything Bartok had ever written for orchestra conducted by Esa Pekka on tour around Europe. And Bartok still, I'm totally lost a lot of the time, even (laughs) though I know this music backwards and love it. It's really hard. And I remember there was a lot of weeping in the festival hall toilets that I was doing at the time, just because I was so stressed by it all. But it was, yeah, it was very good training doing that job. I was there for five or six years or something. And it made me feel quite bulletproof, actually. It takes a lot to scare me now. <laughs> One thing, actually, that I would tell myself at 23, if I could... I remember I had done a rehearsal for votsek with the Philharmonia, with S.P.E.C.A. conducting, and it's a wonderful piece, and it's really hard, and we had hardly any rehearsal, and I played terribly, and... S. Pecker told me off, which he rarely did. We got on very well, but he really gave me a telling off. And I cried in the break and had to drink a cup of tea with seven sugars before I came back to play it <laughs> again. And then I went out for a drink with a very good friend of mine who was training to be an obstetrician. And I said to her oh, how are you? And she said, yeah, what have you been up to today? And I went, oh, I've had a terrible day. It was so stressful. We were doing Wozzeck. It's really hard. I cried in the rehearsal. I didn't play well. It's the worst thing ever. What did you do today? And she said, I did my first cesarean today. (laughs) And I thought, okay, you brought a person into this world and I just played a few wrong notes in Wozzeck. I know what is more important. And that is really good a really good lesson because it's not life or death and the world will keep on turning and if you feel like you've humiliated yourself it's okay everyone does it it's not possible to be perfect all the time and give yourself a bit of a break actually
2: so you mentioned earlier that you were invited to become a professor at the royal academy of music a few years ago is it something you enjoy doing what's it like teaching people who are not too dissimilar
3: of age from you i really love it I find it the most tiring thing that I do, actually. I get more exhausted from two hours teaching than I do from playing a Wagner opera or something. It's a huge responsibility. When I think back to how much I hung on every word that my teachers said, I know that everything I say to them, they will take in and it's a big responsibility. I'm relatively new to it, only having done it for four years. So I'm definitely still learning, but I adore my students and...
2: How many do you have?
3: At the moment, I have three. I try to keep my numbers quite low because I have a lot. Well, (laughs) less that, more that I just don't have that much time. And it's difficult. When I first started out, I had a lot of students and I didn't have enough time. And it was really tricky. It was funny when I started because I was about 25 and I had a post-grad student who was older than me (laughs) and they very much seemed like my age. And that is quite difficult because sometimes when i was talking to them i could tell that they just sort of thought i was their friend and that very much wasn't the relationship that i had with my teachers i had a separation with my teachers and a real respect for them and i wanted that for my students because i thought they could learn better from me if we had that separation so that was quite difficult to get when you're that age that offending
2: someone saying
3: exactly i am not your friend <laughs> i am your senior i am not your friend but that is what's best for them so it was quite tricky and also I never wanted to break them down in the way that I'd been broken down when I was studying so I tried to be nice but then trying to be nice but not their friend it's it's a hard balance to strike.
2: So from teachers that you've had in the past I mean what's the best advice you think you've been given and do you pass it on to your own students?
3: I've been lucky to have some wonderful teachers and some really good advice from them something that always sticks with me is Julie Price who was one of my teachers who's in the BBC Symphony Orchestra who is the most wonderful musician and bassoonist said to me once when you're playing that why is that bit louder and why is that bit out of tune and why is this and I said oh because on my bassoon that note's not very good and on my bassoon that note's a bit flat and she went do you think anyone cares about your instrument and you and I thought actually no they really don't no one cares you have to Not compromise and not make excuses for yourself. Not making excuses is something I always try and say to my students. If they're doing disclaimers at the beginning of the lesson of why something's going to sound rubbish before they've even played it, I think no one's going to care. Are you going to go live on the radio and say that before you play? You're not. You have to just present your best product at all times. The best advice I could give would be to go and watch every orchestra that is local to you wherever you're studying watch the wind section like a hawk if you're a wind player if you're a string player you know watch how the leader sits how the leader plays how they look at the conductor just obsess about it and also then watch everything else that isn't what you want to do so if you want to be an orchestral musician go and watch all the chamber music that you can, go and listen to all the singers that you can, immerse yourself in other things because if you get tunnel vision and if you obsess over one world of music, you're really missing the point. There's so much to be learned from other disciplines, I think.
2: You're so in demand as a performer. Obviously, you've mentioned your positions at English National Opera and the Aurora Orchestra. You're a member of Ensemble 360, and you're a YCAT artist, are doing loads of solo recitals, other chamber music. I mean, how do you balance all of those things? Do you still have time to practice? And how do you still find time for other things in life? <laughs>
3: oh gosh. I'll let you know when I work it out. It's really hard to balance time and there's always going to be compromises. It's really, really difficult to keep everyone happy. And what I learned when I started doing lots of diverse sorts of playing is that every group that you play with and everything that you're doing at that time, they think that your priority is them and that that is the main thing that you do and that is the most important thing in your life. And of course, to be the best musician, you have to have lots of things that you do. But it's really difficult when people pile the pressure on you and exclusively want you to play with them and it gets tricky to keep everyone happy and I then came to a realization that I actually just need to keep myself happy and I need to do what I believe I should be doing and musically what stimulates me and what makes me grow as an artist which is so important especially if you start working in your early 20s you've got to make sure you keep developing.
2: Do you find that means you say no a lot to people?
3: Yes, and it's, I hate saying no. I couldn't say no for the first few years, mainly because I was so shocked that anyone wanted to employ me, that anyone who asked me to do anything, I was like, oh, yes, I'll definitely come and do that, even though it means that I won't have a day off for 73 days, it's totally worth it. And then I started to realize the power of saying no, and you can say no, and people will call you again, and it's fine, that's really hard. And still now, I find it very hard to say no I'm about to have a baby so I've had to say no to a lot of things purely for the fact that I have to give birth (laughs) and look after my child and I have found it really hard and I kept pushing the date of my maternity leave further and further towards my due date thinking oh but I'd just love to do that last concert but then my boyfriend just said no, just put a date in, and that is the date, and that is when you're going to stop. And it's very hard to say no, it's very hard to balance, but look after yourself because no one else will, unfortunately. It's your responsibility to make sure that you're okay and that you're giving enough time to what you want to.
2: Obviously, because this is a podcast, you can only hear Amy, you can't see her, but I shall give you a nice description. Amy is looking beautiful and very pregnant, <sighs> very large. <She's> lying up <laughs> Reclining on her bed. And, oh, I know um, how unprofessional. Very, <laughs> very relaxed, very comfortable. So obviously you're about to have a lovely little baby girl in July. Yes. It's very exciting. Um, so I was wondering, what's it been like working as a musician and being pregnant?
3: It's been harder than I thought it would be. Mainly because I'm a wind player and I didn't realise a lot of things about pregnancy before I got pregnant. I just thought you got sick and you got large and then you gave birth and that was it. But what I didn't realise is that your volume of blood changes and your blood pressure changes and the size of your lungs change. And all these things that are kind of crucial to wind playing. And also, of course, your diaphragm is in a totally different place because you have a person the size of a pumpkin or whatever (laughs) that is there now. So you can't breathe in the same way. So I found that very difficult to adjust to. And also my unborn baby has made it known that she is not a fan of the bassoon (laughs) she sticks a foot in my ribs on one side every time I pay too much it's hard work but I was very much determined to keep going I really don't want to in any way give up my career at all so I was determined to do it and I'm nearly there
2: so in terms of after the baby's born what's your plan then
3: So I decided that I wanted six months off, which to me at the time seemed like a ludicrously long amount of time to not work for. But it's people take longer, people take shorter, you know, it's completely up to you. It's very hard to predict because you have no idea how you're going to feel once you've had a baby and whether you're going to want to be at home all the time or whether you're going to want to actually get a bit of space. I just have no idea. So I'm taking six months with one very cheeky Warhol concert in the middle of it. <laughs> just slot it in there. <laughs> just slotted in just because I absolutely was not going to say no to that. So I'm going to do that and then I'm going to go back into retirement for another six <laughs> weeks and then and then start playing again.
2: One question we've been asking all of our interviewees, if you weren't a musician, what would you like
3: to be instead? Oh my gosh. I would probably be an interior designer who would renovate old properties. I love old buildings and I love interiors and I'm obsessed with Pinterest and (laughs) magazines and things. I just love making something sparkly out of something that looks terrible. I'm not very good at being hands-on. I've tried a lot. (laughs) I would probably have to just direct people or else (laughs) much better at that. Yeah. (laughs) Things would
2: fall apart. Each episode on Musicians Weekend, we read out stories of our listeners' weirdest ever gigs. So naturally, I was wondering, what's been your weirdest ever gig?
3: This is almost too easy to answer, and I don't think there will be another gig as weird as this. In 2012, I played in the premiere of Stockhausen's Mittwoch aus Licht, which was an opera that had never been staged before because it was Ludicrously expensive, there was four helicopters in it with a string quartet with a different member in each helicopter. What? It was bonkers, but absolutely amazing and I was in Act two of it, where I was a flying soloist, so I played from a trapeze about sort of eighty a hundred foot up in the air and when they asked me to do it, I got a call saying, "Are you free in August?' and Are You Afraid of Heights? And I thought, (laughs) what the hell is this about? And I had to memorize 45 minutes of Stockhausen, incredibly difficult music, and I had to do it whilst dressed basically as a disco ball, suspended (laughs) from a trapeze from the roof of a factory, of a disused factory. So- In London? It was in Birmingham, and it was Birmingham Opera Company. It was an incredible experience. I mean, when else are you gonna do that? And the audience were lying on mattresses on the floor of this factory, and we were in trapezes. And they lowered us up and down. We kind of looked like we were floating. Basically, he wanted us to look like we were flying. And I had a guy winching me up and down. Um, with <laughs> <You> trusted him. Actually, <laughs> there was one day where I felt suddenly my trapeze go a little bit off balance, and I thought that's weird because usually it was just totally standard. And I looked down, and the cage had fallen off one of the counterweights, and the. Guy who was winching me up and down was hanging off it with his arms, (laughs) his whole body weight, and shouting into his headpiece. So basically if he'd have let go, I would have come crashing down and that would have been the last day's work and probably (laughs) the last day on earth that I would have had. So thankfully he was amazing. And then what was funny is that this was in a show and the audience couldn't see this because the guys who were winching us up and down were behind a. A false wall, so we could see them from the ceiling, but no one in the audience could see them. And so I had to just sort of sit there, watching this all unfold, watching guys running towards him with power drills, trying to drill it back together so it didn't break. It was, yeah, a little bit stressful. That amazing.
2: I think you might be winning on weirdest, <laughs> weirdest gig ever.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Amy, so much for being such a great guest. Now on to our weird gig of the week, and this one was actually experienced by myself and a number of other young London freelancers. It involved the conductor having to restart a section of the music twice, each mm. time he turned around to the audience and apologised before restarting, and a number of us realised that we didn't think we'd ever experienced that, Ever. <laughs>
1: That's really cringy.
0: I mean, ever. I, and um, if it couldn't have got any worse, the orchestra then got food poisoning from the catered food we were served before. Luckily, as I'm allergic to gluten, I couldn't eat the food. <laughs> so, so I was saved. But um, sadly, the audience were also served the same food. So I'm waiting to see if that is um, reported on.
2: So if you went to a concert on Saturday night and you were yeah, unwell um, on Sunday,
0: R- let, write in and let us, know. <laughs> let us know, because I think I'll know which concert that was.
1: So now, some upcoming concerts. Last week, I had my first experience playing a Baroque concert of Bach cantatas at A415. If that doesn't mean anything to you, um, what that means is that um, modern pitch is when instruments tune to the note A, which equals 440 hertz, so 415 hertz is about a semitone lower. It sort of feels like the carpet's been taken out from under your feet because everything is just lower than you expect, but it creates a lovely sense of resonance and sonority. This concert was part of the Kensington Olympia Festival of Music and the Arts, also known as Kofma. They've got loads of events coming up this year, including the lovely Atea Wind Quintet. So if you're in West London, this may be up your alley, and we'll post a link to the events that are coming up.
2: If contemporary dance is something that floats your boat, then check out the latest Rum Bear show at Sadler's Wells this week. It's called Life is a Dream, and the whole show is choreographed to music by the Polish composer Wawski. It's totally wonderful music, and I'd really recommend going to that.
0: Something I was recommended that might appeal to you opera fans listening Uh, is a play by David Hare called The Moderate Soprano, and it's about the founder of Glyndebourne Opera, John Christie, and his relationship with the singer Audrey Mildmay, and it's currently on at the Duke of York's Theatre until the 30th of June.
1: Special thanks to Chris Rowe, who composed our awesome jingle. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and your favourite podcast apps. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell all your friends. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye!